So, uh, I don't often give um, uh, parental uh, ratings for my sermons, but this one would fall into that PG-13 category uh, because it talks a ton about sex. So um, if that is uncomfortable for you, it's in the Bible, so deal with it. But also, um, I uh, will do my best to be tactful as we walk through these things, but also it's in the Bible, so deal with it. So kind of live in that grace space, if you wouldn't mind. Um, we're going we're gonna to pray, and we're going to dive into the scriptures this morning. It is a big and profound passage, uh, so I encourage you, again, I know I've said this a few times with uh, Colossians, if you're not a note taker, it's a great time to start. This is stuff that I think has a profound impact on your life, the way that you choose to live as a follower of Jesus, and I really do recommend... Um, doing an active kind of listening as you are part of the sermon this morning. Active meaning more than just sitting there and hoping one or two things sticks in your brain. All right? Does that sound good? It sounds good to me, so I think you should do that. Yeah. Uh, let's pray, and we'll dig into the Word. Jesus, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the way that you shape our lives and uh, call us to something greater than ourselves. Jesus, would you bless our time? I, I, I ask that you would use it, that it would be formative in us. Draw us to yourself. Show us your beautiful and powerful way of life. And give us grace to walk in it. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen. So if you've been with us in the book of Colossians, uh, you would know that the entire letter is functioning as a, uh, a foundation-laying letter for a new church. We don't know all the stats on Colossae when Paul writes this letter, but our guess is that the church is a young church. Not that the people in it are young specifically, but that the church itself has only been running for a few years. It's a church plant that took place, and Paul was not a part of the planting of this church. He was not in the area. Our best guess is that a guy named Epaphras went to hear Paul preach somewhere else, took the message of the gospel back to Colossae and started preaching it, and a church started forming as the gospel was being preached. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And Paul is writing back into this community to try and help lay foundations. If you're familiar with uh, the kind of the current church story in India, it's a great example. Uh, evangelists will go in India to a community that's never heard of Jesus before. They'll preach Jesus. 30 to 40 people in that town will come to know Jesus and give their lives to him. The first person that says yes to Jesus is dubbed the pastor, and the evangelist moves on, and that person is left to try and lead the church. They're the most experienced person in the town because they got saved eight minutes before anybody else. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing, but it also comes with challenges. This young church and their forming leadership doesn't have a great depth of understanding, and Paul is writing back into this community to make sure that they are established in the Word of God, that their foundation is secured, and they understand what that means for life. What we talked about at the very beginning of the series is the reason this is so important. Even though you may feel like your theology is established, you know the Word of God, you've sat under sermons for five years or 18 years or 37 years or whatever it is, we learn that our theology is shaped by a lot of different sources. We learn from places like Facebook and Instagram. Somebody says something and it sounds kind of decent and we grab a hold of it and it becomes a part of our theological makeup, even if it has no basis in truth. 
Uh, there was a recent survey, and somewhere in the neighborhood, I know I make up a lot of stats on the spot. I'm just trying to remember things I read. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of Americans think that God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. So you have this idea that people think they know theology. They think they know God, but it's impacted by a lot of other things that other people say. <laughs> Looks like maybe 70% of the people in this room thought God helps those who help themselves was in the Bible. Just watching you look at me like, wait, what? It's not? Um, so that's, it's really important for us to make sure that we are taking the, the place of the Colossians as Paul writes this letter and trying to understand what foundations need to be laid and relayed in our lives so that we can live according to who Jesus really is. So Paul's writing. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about his, his kind of twofold goals in this. He's talked about rooting the Colossians in Christ and building the Colossians up in Christ. Two different goals. To be rooted in Christ deals with foundational issues, the roots that go deep that, that you can't necessarily see, the stuff that is the invisible parts of you need to be built, established or built up in Christ. These are critical. So your character, your integrity, your identity, the internal working of who you are, this needs to be established in Christ. Because of who God is and what he has done and what he has declared over you, that informs the inner person that you are. Now, if we're all being honest, there's a lot that goes on internally that nobody outside ever really knows about, right? Just internal dialogue, internal conversation, internal beliefs, internal lies, stuff that just goes on in this world, whether you have an active imagination or not, there is a lot that happens inside of us that Many people don't ever even know about even our spouses, and it's not like we're hiding it. It's like we wouldn't even know how to say it. Even if we could articulate it, we wouldn't necessarily know how to do that. And so there's a lot of us that's unseen, and Paul's writing to the Colossians saying that needs to be shaped by Jesus. That needs to be shaped by what he's done, who he is, and how he operates. So he lays the foundation of Jesus for the Colossians. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. So get Jesus and build your lives on him. So that's the rooted in him. Then we talked about being built up in Christ. So rooted is what is invisible, what is unseen. If you're driving through Pasadena looking at all the craftsman houses, you're not typically saying, look at the rebar on that house. It just is, it's unseen. It's stuff that you don't really think about. But if you are driving through Pasadena looking at the craftsman houses, you think, those windows are awesome. Look at that door. It's beautiful. The facade is what you can see. And that's what it means to be built up in Christ. The things that the world experience about you, the way that you speak, the way that you are, the way that you live, the decisions that you make, the personality that comes out of you, all of these things that the world interacts with, those are being built up in Christ. So your internal, invisible attributes, your personhood is being shaped by Christ, and also your personality, your lifestyle, the way that you express yourself and that people experience you is being shaped by Christ as well. Paul wants both of them. Sometimes we, we favor one over the other. We favor the, the foundation being laid, but I don't want anybody to know that I follow Jesus. I want to be invisible to the world. I want them to feel like I'm one of them. And so we hide the, uh, the external parts of us ever-changing. 
Some of us will change the external parts, just what people can see, but, but none of our foundation has been laid. We just look like a good person, but there's no real belief in Christ, and that, that gets destroyed real quickly when things come up that challenge our beliefs. All right, so that's Colossians up to this point. We all good on that? Paul is shifting in this letter from laying the foundation and rooting us in Christ to now building up in Christ each and every one of these Colossians. And in chapter 3, there's a verse that sets the tone for the rest of the book. So if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 3. Our main text is verses 5 through 11, but we need to read verse 1 to set the tone. So Paul writes this. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ... And then he goes on to talk about a lot of things. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above. He gets into our text. He'll talk to husbands. He'll talk to wives. He'll talk to masters. He'll talk to slaves. He talks to many different people groups coming out of that statement. If then you've been raised with Christ, then this, then this, then this. These are the things that need to be true about you if then you've been raised with Christ. So there's an important moment here. First off, if you've not been raised with Christ. If you've not been raised with Christ, meaning you've never given your life to Jesus in faith, trusted him for salvation, been baptized to demonstrate externally what has gone on internally, you would not call yourself a Christian, you're not walking by the Spirit, all of the things that the Scriptures talk about for those that are in Christ. If that's not you then consider the next 40 minutes or so to be advertising for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it doesn't apply to you. It's a weird thing because Paul is writing specifically to those who have been raised with Christ. So this is a message for those people. And for anybody that's not in that category, I hope that you would use this as research, that you would ask a million questions of your friends that know Jesus, that if you are a skeptic and there's stuff that's frustrating to you, you would verbalize it and work through it. But this is not specifically for you. It's for people that have been raised with Christ to take on and take in. Now, for those of you that have been raised with Christ, that are walking with Jesus, that have been filled by the Spirit, that have shown yourselves to, to be disciples of Jesus because you said, yes, and now I will follow Jesus. This is not only for you, but these are the commands for how to shape your life. You don't get the freedom, if you've been raised with Christ, to say, well, I've been raised with Christ, but I don't want to live like that. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this is the kingdom, this is the king, all people in the kingdom are being shaped into the image of the king. We went through Matthew. It took us a really long time, and that was the bottom line of the entire book of Matthew is that we are growing to become like this person, Jesus, who came and died for our sin and is now shaping in this world disciples who live like Jesus did. So that's who we are. So Paul uses this verse, 3-1, as a premise. If then you've been raised with Christ, and now he's going to go and he's going to talk what Josh shared last week, set your minds on things above, seek the things above, start building a life where you are focused on who Jesus is and let that inform who you are. But now Paul's going to give some instructions on how we are to live our lives engaging with the world around us, all right? So here we go, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But now, I'm sorry, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Jesus, would you help us to understand your word and put it into practice in our lives? In your name, amen. All right, first thing. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above, set your minds on things above, and put to death what is earthly in you. Paul's instruction is starting to get very practical for how we can practice the way of Jesus, for how we can live like Jesus, for how we can walk in the way of Jesus. He's starting to help the Colossians shape a life around this idea of the kingdom of God. And he gets really helpful by saying, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So one of the big questions is, all right, well, what is earthly in us? And Paul actually uses this, uh, this moment to teach the Colossians things that Jesus had taught the disciples. There's a connection between what Paul says and what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul deals with two main categories. Uh, our sexuality, the way that we live sexually, and also our uh, emotions of anger and hate and the way that those make their, their way out of our person and into the world, he wants to deal with that as well. Those are two issues that Jesus deals with directly in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, Paul takes them in uh, sex first and then anger second. Jesus went anger first and then sex second. And so we'll start in Paul's order. So look at verse 27 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And here in Colossians 3, we have Paul say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's the ESV, the, the Greek literally translated would say, put to death, therefore, your earthly members. Exact same language that Jesus uses to describe the things that he's dealing with in lust, in issues of sexuality. Now, Paul goes into a list and he starts writing this list of issues out. And he says this. He says sexual immorality, and then the text goes on to say impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Uh, what you could do to understand the context of this passage is you could put the word sexual in front of each of those words or phrases. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, sexual impurity, sexual passion, sexual evil desire, and sexual covetousness. That's the context of the passage that we're going through. All of it is dealing with our sexuality as a person in the kingdom of God. So let's walk through these things one by one and try and understand what Paul is trying to get at. And before we get that, let's talk about putting to death. This is a very graphic image. It has a, a specific 
uh, context in the Greek. Mathete is, is dealing with uh, like a limb that is no longer working. You would tie it off and ultimately amputate it so that it could no longer infect the rest of your body. It's a, it's a vivid and almost sickening idea that Paul is using to communicate how important it is that we get rid of these sins in our lives. Jesus used the language of taking out your right eye or cutting off your right hand. So between Jesus and Paul, let me ask you, do you think that how we deal with sin in our lives is a big deal in the scriptures? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The entirety of being a follower of Jesus is not eliminating sinfulness from your life, but you also can't follow Jesus without actively working on eliminating sin from your life. The writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, uh, let us cast off the things that cling so closely and the sins which so easily entangle and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the idea of the writers of the scriptures is that we need to be actively shedding the old way of life, our sinful way, and, and putting those things to death in order to run the race that Jesus has for us. So Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Be intentional, be ruthless, and get to work. All of this is in the context of if you've been raised with Christ, if you've experienced the goodness of Christ, if you've been given a new name, a new identity, if you've been shown the love and grace and favor of God, if you are experiencing the full inheritance of all that God has for you, then this is the life that you're going to live. So I want you to hear that the context of this isn't, hey, you wicked, evil Colossians, get that sin out of your life. It's Paul saying, look, if you have been raised with Christ, this is the natural outcome of a person that's been raised with Christ. It's dealing purposefully with the brokenness of your life. So you guys ready to deal purposefully with the brokenness of our life? Yes! Oh, I can't wait. It's going to be so good. That's what I thought you guys were going to do. I didn't, I pictured that differently in my head. Um, <laughs> silence is also okay. You can just stare at me. That's fine. So what is earthly in you? Let's start with sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality deals with anything sexual that is outside of the context of marriage. So if you think of it this way, sexual morality, the way that God has created sex, it's designed for marriage and it's good. It's designed to be good. God made it good and he blessed it. One of my favorite things to do is put into a wedding ceremony. I've done a lot of your guys' weddings and there's a great verse in uh, Genesis 2 where it talks about how the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. And it always feels a little awkward to put that into a wedding ceremony, but it's really important because it defines God's view of our sexuality. That he is blessing sex in the context of marriage, intimacy in the context of marriage. It's good. Sexual immorality is anything that takes God's sexual intent or his intent for sexuality and twisting it, putting it outside of the bounds that he has given us for blessing, for purpose, for favor, for all the things that he wants to lavish on us, when that takes place outside of that context, it becomes immorality, something that God did not design, and it comes with the natural and uh, otherwise consequences related to it. So sexual immorality is a huge category, and Paul starts big and says, put to death anything sexually that is not in the context of marriage. Now, why is it so important that he starts 
big. I grew up in a household where uh, we talked about sex for the context of marriage. Like my parents, they gave us a picture of what we were aiming for. They, they talked to us about purity before marriage. Uh, some of us grew up in that kind of a household. I had friends whose parents grew up, uh, raised their kids in a very different way. At, you know, 14 years old, they handed them condoms and said, don't get anybody pregnant. And that was the sexual ethic of different households, friends of mine that, that grew up a different way. The Colossians grew up in a city and in a context where sexuality was completely normal. Going to the temple and as a part of your worship, participating in sexual acts was a part of what they were raised in. So when Paul's writing to these people, again, it's not angry, it's not frustrated, it's not, how could you? It's, all right, let's talk about, since you've been raised with Christ, let's put to death those earthly things. That's not who we are anymore. So sexual immorality is no longer your way of life. Now you adopt God's framework for sexuality as a part of the kingdom of God. So put to death sexual immorality. Now he starts to get more specific, and Jesus moves in the same path. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, physical. But I tell you, if anyone looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has already committed adultery, and that is the second phrase that Paul brings up, sexual impurity. It goes to our minds, the things that we think about. The imagination, the, the space, the internal stuff that goes on in us. Paul's writing to the Colossians and he's saying it's not just about ending the physical acts. It's also about starting to take our minds captive for the kingdom of God. See, what goes on into, internally is ultimately what makes its way out of us. And so if all we're trying to do is contain the external behaviors, contain the, the physical actions, and we don't deal with the internal person at all, there's always going to be a clash. There's always going to be something that's trying to come out of us, and we're just going to be fighting that physical battle. And Paul's saying, let's take the battleground more internal. Let's deal with the things of the mind, the things that we imagine. Let's put those things to death as well. Even that is a, is a place where marriage is protected in God's way. Or sexuality, more than marriage, sexuality is protected in that place of, I have a purpose for it, and it's not to be exploited in an impure way. That's not my purpose for it. Then he goes on, he gets even more detailed. He says, sexual passion. Now, passion is typically a very good thing. And even in the Bible, the word passion is used in a great way often. I'm very passionate about this project. I'm very passionate about this people group. I'm very passionate about Jesus. Those are wonderful statements to make. Aaron, I did not recognize you, and I thought Anne-Marie had her head on somebody else. That was weird. All right. The whole beard is gone. It's just a mustache. That's a wow. All right. No hat. It's a different. Just threw me off there. All right. <laughs> We're all good, guys. We're all good. Just a haircut. Just a haircut. <laughs> All right. Good times over there. Okay. Passion. All right. So sexual passion. This is the um, kind of the, the inner workings, the, the desires, the wants, the things that you are longing for. This is where the idea of lust comes from, where there's just this internal drive to want more of something. We would say that that would be great in the context of marriage. Long for the wife of your youth. 
But outside of the context of marriage, you run into a place where sexual passion is what gets you into trouble. Have you read through Proverbs? Sexual passion is what gets you into trouble. That internal desire left unchecked will lead to physical action. It takes your mind to places that God does not want your mind to go, not just because he's a killjoy, but because he is building you up into a person of righteousness that lives the kingdom of God on this earth now. That's what he wants for you. So he calls us to put to death sexual passions outside of the context of marriage. Again, this is all in that context of sexual immorality. Then he goes on to sexual evil desire. And this is a, an interesting place where it does go a little bit dark. The things in us that want that are genuinely from an evil place, an unnatural place, a place of desiring things from what the world or what the enemy might place inside of us. And it's, it's hard for us to even go to this kind of a place. But why is Paul getting so specific with the Colossians? Because there's a critical piece in this. If all he did is say, hey, Jesus loves you guys. Let's just kind of avoid the sex stuff outside of marriage. And then he just moves on and he doesn't deal with some of the inner issues. What happens to people when there's just this ambiguity out there? It can actually be kind of a devastating place. It can be a hard place to, to wonder, is what I'm thinking normal? Is what I'm doing okay? Is this a part of kind of God's acceptable space in the kingdom? And so Paul's just trying to help narrow this down and say, look, even those, those sexual evil desires, those things that come from the wellspring of our brokenness, put those things to death. Don't dwell on those things. Those things belong in our old way of life, in our old self, not in the new person that has been created by Jesus. So put those things to death. And finally, sexual covetousness, which is idolatry. If you think back on the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife was the command to Israel. The, the idea of desiring what somebody else has in God's way is a specific violation of you simply being content in Christ. You've been given new life in Jesus. You've been given the full inheritance of the Father. You've been given all that he has, and it's this picture of the prodigal son that says, actually, Dad, can I have your full inheritance? I just want to go live my own way. I want to go do my own thing. I want to want everything that you gave me and everything else that you gave that guy and that girl. I don't just want what I have. I want what they have too. And Paul's trying to teach the Colossians like, hey, that, that's, not, that's not who we are anymore. That's not who we are. Maybe that was totally normal. If you've ever read through, I don't know, anything old and Greek or Roman, you know, like just comes from this place of that sexuality was just like, if you want it, then you pursue it. The philosophy of hedonism, that the ultimate good is what makes you happy, what pleasures you, that comes from Greek and Roman thinking and would have been rich and thick in the Colossian lifestyle. And Paul's saying that's not the way of the kingdom of God to just whatever makes you happy, that is what's good. Paul is saying actually what is ultimately good is learning how to treasure Jesus and live a life that treasures Jesus and experience all the fruit and the blessing and the power that comes from that. He says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That sounds like a very ominous statement, and it kind of is. 
on account of these, these sexual sins, the wrath of God is coming. And what we get from this, Paul and Peter share the same mentality. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.4 that we become partakers of the divine nature and thus we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. Peter's view is that the, the lust of humanity is part of what is bringing this world into a place of total corruption. Now, I just want you to think about the, the opposite posture of what's in God's word versus what's in the world right now. So in the world right now, the, the greatest ethos that we can live is to love who you want to love, how you want to love. That is, the, that is the ethic of the world right now. In fact, if you think something different than that, if you put rails on love, you are a bigot, you are someone of hate, you are somebody that is trying to tear down the ultimate good, which is love. And you can kind of get caught up if you ever get into dialogue with people and you kind of get stuck because they, they, they peg you as being anti-love. But what the Word of God says is that misapplied love or misunderstood love is at the core of what is wrong with humanity, not what is right with humanity. That's a hard statement to make. I don't know all of you in this room. That statement might be wildly offensive to you. But I want to show you what God's word is teaching. That if we don't understand and aren't willing to receive from God his way and step in submission to that and say, what you say is greater than what I think, and we are going to find ourselves in a very corrupt place. And so Paul and Peter, they both write about this, that, that this is a part of how God's wrath is being revealed against humanity is when we, when we break how we understand love, how we apply the concept of love, it actually brings more harm than good to this world. It corrupts the world that we're in. What God has is a way that, that builds up the world, that, that is constructive, that, that restores and redeems and reconciles the world. And he's trying to lay out this path for us, and he invites us to walk in that path. But in our culture right now, it takes a massive amount of humility, submission, obedience, and courage to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you on this one, that your way is higher than my way, that your word is higher than my opinion. So Paul writes, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now he says this, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. This verse is one of the greatest verses of hope that we have ever heard in the scriptures. I want you to think about what Paul just said. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In these things, you once walked. These used to define you. This used to be your way of life, but that's not you anymore but you still have to put these things to death. If you believe that Paul doesn't get processed, that he doesn't get your struggle, that he doesn't understand where you're coming from or how long and how hard this battle has been for you, you need to see what he's writing in the scriptures. His challenge to the Colossians, put these things to death. His understanding, this used to be who you were. Used to be. And they still have to put it to death. So what I want to challenge you with and encourage you with is that there is full understanding in the scriptures that this may have been your identity growing up. This may have been who you were walking in, in the ways of the world for whatever length of time. 
And if you gave your life to Jesus and have been raised with him, Paul understands that now there's a journey involved in putting to death the things of the flesh, the things of the earth, and moving towards Christ's likeness. It is not instantaneous. Anybody here where holiness was totally instant when you gave your life to Jesus? Just throw your hand up if you wouldn't mind. Universally, no follower of Jesus is instantly holy the moment they gave themselves to Jesus. That is not how that works. As a result of that, you should not feel overwhelming shame when you continue to struggle after giving your life to Jesus. What we are talking about is not if you're not in, you're out. Here's how we know this. Paul doesn't write to the Colossians and say, guys, it's awesome that Epaphras brought the gospel to you. Love the church, love the faith, love all those things. But you have some sexual evil desires, so you guys are on the outside looking in. That's not how he writes to them. His whole posture towards them is, Jesus is good and beautiful. Build your life on him. It will change everything about who you are. As you're coming to faith in Jesus and this, this life is taking shape, you were this kind of a person. Now let's start putting these things to death. Let's get to work and be intentional about growing you into the person of Jesus. He understands the process and is inviting us into it. Now, if you're sitting there saying, I've been raised with Christ and I have no interest in the process, that's a different issue. If you're saying, I love Jesus, I can't wait for heaven, I am filled by the Spirit, I am all in, I don't want to change at all. That's not how that works either. Paul writes that in Romans 6.1. He says, okay, so should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? No! He answers his own question real fast. It's kind of like me when I preach. I ask you a question and you're like, did I answer it or is he just going to answer it for us? Paul answers it for them. Should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? This time you get to answer. No. Oh, good. Yeah. No. That's Romans 6.1. It's not the way of the kingdom of God to experience grace and then live how you want to live, do whatever you want to do, go wherever you want to go, be whoever you want to be, be the defining force of good in your own life. If you say yes to following Jesus, what that means is that you are saying, I believe that Jesus is King, Lord, God, Savior, Redeemer, Reconciler. His way is higher than my way. I will listen to him. Uh, there's a great moment. A lot of wedding references right now. I did one on Friday night for John and Carol. It was super fun. Uh, it's, it's this incredible moment in Ephesians where Paul's writing to the wives. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And he goes on to say, in the same way that the church submits to Christ. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wow, submit, that's a bad, you know, bad word. Whatever. No, it's a beautiful word. He's giving wives the opportunity to demonstrate Jesus to the world in the same way that the church is called to submit to Christ. That's a part of all of our lives. Every single one of us. Submission is a new way of life for a follower of Jesus. And wives are given the honor of being able to demonstrate that to the world and say, this is what it looks like. This is what, that, what Jesus talks about in submitting to, the, to him. This is what that looks like. I get to do that with my husband to demonstrate that to the world. It is a powerful and beautiful gospel statement. But the church is called to submit to Christ, not Christ submitting to the way that we think. So we align ourselves with his way. All right, so in these, you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So we go back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. This is verse 21, sorry. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Paul's version. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, and lies. So let's talk about what Paul is trying to accomplish here. Two categories. Dealing with how the world experiences you. First in your sexuality, put to death what is earthly in you. It's a confusing message to the world if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then you live the same sexual ethic as the world around you. Those two things are not consistent. So when we live the sexuality of the kingdom of God, which is a crazy sentence to say, but when we live the sexuality of the kingdom of God, we are demonstrating to the world that he is a different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom that is bringing restoration and beauty and strength and value and goodness and identity to the world. Now Paul goes with how people interact with us. If you have in your life anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lies, we need to put those away, putting off our old self and putting on Christ. So let's talk about each of these things. Let's start by talking about anger. Anger can be a good thing. Uh, the anger towards injustice, God at times gets angry at the injustice of the world. But anger in and of itself is something that we as human beings are not often equipped to handle. And there's a great verse that deals with this in Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there or you can just see it on the screen behind me. Romans 12, starting in verse 18, says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you have been given an opportunity to regard no one according to the flesh. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Regard no one according to the flesh. So when you see people, you're not viewing them as that person that is frustrating you, that's making you angry, that's doing bad things to you, that's persecuting you. You're not seeing them in that light anymore. You're seeing them as a soul that Jesus himself wants to redeem and lift up. So you have been relieved of the burden of having to show anger at that person. And God says, I will hold the anger towards wickedness and sin. You don't have to. How crazy is that? God is saying, that's a part of my job description, not yours. I know how to handle anger and wrath. You guys get it wrong a lot. So I will take on that and you let it go. Put it away. What do you do with this? What God is saying to us in that Romans passage is... Don't worry. No sin will go unpunished. You don't need to worry about that. When somebody sins against you, your prayer in that moment can be for that person that they would experience. Well, here's the thing. 
We'll get to malice in just a minute. If you're really malicious towards them, then you can pray that they would experience the, the consequences of their sin. That's malice. If you are understanding the gospel, your prayer is that Jesus would be punished for their sin on the cross and they would experience the grace of God through the blood of Christ. God's anger towards sin was unleashed on Jesus on the cross. And God's desire, his stated desire, is that not one person would perish, not even one. God desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So he's told us through the scriptures, I don't want anybody to experience my wrath, not a single person. He tells the Romans, don't worry, nobody will go unpunished. But his dream, God's stated ideal, is that every human being would be protected from his wrath by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Every single one. That is what God wants and has made available that everybody would experience his grace. Not everybody does. People that choose to reject Jesus as Messiah step outside of the protection of Jesus as the recipient, the propitiation of the wrath of God, and they experience the wrath of God for their own sin on themselves. But anybody for all time can step under the finished work of Jesus on the cross and experience grace for your brokenness. So God is saying, I will deal with the injustice of the world. You demonstrate peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and gentleness. Have you ever noticed that one of the fruits of the Spirit is not righteous anger? It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? I'm filled by the Spirit, and oftentimes our reaction to being filled by the Spirit is to feel like we have to unleash God's anger towards the sinfulness of the world. And God is saying to us, I will take that on. You be patient and kind and joyful and gentle and self-controlled. You live the fruit of the Spirit, and I will take care of anger and wrath. Put it away. That is a, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. That is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. There's some things that I could say on that uh, related to righteous anger, but we're going to move on. Um, this is one of those could be two and a half hour sermons. We're going to try and fit it into 40 minutes. So back to Colossians chapter 3. After anger and wrath, he talks about malice. Malice is the thing in us that wants the worst for somebody else, that wants a bad outcome for somebody else. It's that desire for things to go wrong in somebody's life. We all have that person that we just really don't want to get the promotion. We really don't want them to, to get anything good to happen in their lives. We just, they, they get under our skin. They drive us nuts. That is at its core, not wanting the best for somebody, not wanting the gospel for somebody, not wanting the, the full inheritance of Jesus to be lavished on them is where malice lives. And Paul's saying, that's just not who we are anymore. If you grow to be a person that no longer regards people according to the flesh and you see soul instead of frustrating human being, then you start to want for them the goodness and the fullness of what Jesus has for them. That's how you can pray for those who persecute you, is when people come after you, you get to see who they are and you can pray for them and say, Jesus, they need you more than anything. 
Love them. Shower them with grace and kindness. Minister to them. Bless them. And then you get to be an agent of that blessing. See, God is just taking this whole world and flipping it upside down with the people that are in his kingdom. That's malice. And then he talks about slander. Slander is what happens when malice vomits. Okay, that's, that's the idea. Slander is when the things that are inside of us that we don't like about people actually make their way out of our mouth. I got a chance a couple of weeks ago to take uh, my son and a bunch of his friends to Magic Mountain for a birthday party. Uh, and it was, a, it was a sweet moment, great time, loved it. It's a great time to observe because you get two hours to wait in line for every two-minute ride. So you just watch as these kids talk. Now, it is not natural for 11-year-olds to talk about their teachers and say, you know what I love about my teacher? It's how encouraging she is how awesome she is, how she just gives us her best every day. Oh, my favorite yard duty on campus. Oh, I love the yard duties on campus. They're the best. They're so sweet and so kind and so gentle with us. Oh, you know who my favorite guy in the class is, who I just love how, how hard he works, how disciplined he is. They just don't talk like that. And it's not just them. It's all of us. Our tendency is not to find the best in people and to speak that. It's to cut down. Good timing. <laughs> That's what tends to come out of us. And God is creating a different way. Flipping completely this kingdom of God and saying, I have a different way for you. It's to actually speak life into people. To speak joy into people. To speak the blessing of the Father into people. I have a different way for you, and it's not to be a slanderer. And finally, or not finally, but the next one he talks about is obscene talk. Now, obscene talk, I'm glad he used a generic term because it, it varies from culture to culture. If you're watching the World Cup, you can see people swear in 32 different languages. It's incredible. Uh, obscenities are defined by a culture. I can't stand up here and say that a particular swear word is sinful to say. That's it's kind of besides the point. But Paul's writing and he's saying, look, if the kingdom of God is going to be communicated to the world, something in our speech needs to be pure. It needs to be different from the world around us. Our tendency is to just kind of like, hey, I just want to bro down with the world. I'm just going to be like them and they're going to be like me. And we're, they can see how cool Christians are when we drop F-bombs. That's the thing. That's the way that we're communicating Jesus. And Paul's writing to him and he's just saying, look, I, that's a different way of life. You've left that behind. As you're becoming more like Jesus, put away the obscene talk and start to walk in the purity of a person who is pursuing Jesus. This is kind of a, a, a different way. Uh, honestly, there was, there was sort of like a, a general church legalism that existed, I don't know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, crept into the 90s. Then there's a big deconstructionist movement in the 2000s where everybody's like, you know what, we can swear in sermons and say whatever we want. And, and there needs to be a little bit of a, a check in that and say, well, like, wait, what does this mean? What are we saying God actually wants his, his purity, his love, his grace, and his kindness to make its way out of our mouths. He wants us to walk in purity, even in how the world experiences us. So if you give your lives to Jesus, it should start to impact the way that you speak. The last thing that Paul says is do not lie to one another. If you start to think about your words, the way that you defend yourself, the way that you speak to other people, 
Deception is just a normal part of human life these days. And here's the thing that I want to tell you. You don't have to lie. You don't have to. Do you know why? Because Jesus has already come to you and he said, I love you. I'm with you. You are mine for all eternity. You can do nothing to shake the fact that you are my child. You don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of the fact that you are a broken, fallen human being because I saw that, I know that, I chose to love you and redeem you, and I'm walking with you in the process of you growing in righteousness. So you don't need to lie to anybody. They don't need to think better of you. You don't need to manipulate a situation. You can be fully honest and trust Jesus for his identity that he has given to you. You can speak truthfully and know that he is with you in that place. Now, this is hard because a lot of you are in sales. You're in, you're in roles in life. You're in a legal profession. You're in places where a lot of your life is shading the truth or, or maybe having a, a hard time being fully honest. And you're just saying, but what about this? And what about this? And the reality is there's a lot of those what about this is. And Paul's writing to us, and he's he's trying to encourage us to say, when we walk in the way of the kingdom, there's a different kind of blessing and a different kind of favor and a different kind of inheritance that comes with that. Walk in the way of Jesus. We we called this series Choose Jesus because that's essentially what Paul's doing. You have an old way of life that you could choose from, and I'm inviting you to choose a different way. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. He's saying, you have an old way of life that represented how you used to live before Christ came into your life and raised you up. Now that you've been raised with Christ, you can live this life of putting off the old self. And that is like a daily thing. Put off the old self, and like you put on your clothes in the morning, put on Christ. Who am I? I am a child of God. What does a child of God do? I walk in faithfulness. I live by the power of the Holy Spirit. I bless people. I don't revile them. I love them. I don't hate them. I protect them. I don't lust over them. I minister to them. I don't seek my own pleasure. I'm a child of God. See, Paul talked about the foundation, and that, for a lot of us, makes a ton of sense. Yeah, oh, I got to build my life on the belief that Jesus is king. And then he talks about how that makes its way out of us, and that's where the rubber kind of meets the road for a lot of us. How do I live my life, and what do other people experience when they see me? Paul's writing to the Colossians, and he's saying, that matters. If we're going to do the thing that we are now created to do, which is represent Jesus in this world, make disciples of all nations, proclaim the goodness of our king, then living a kingdom life, choosing the way of Jesus, is going to be very much on the front foot of how we present Jesus to this world. You can say all you want, but if your life doesn't back it up, if the way that you live doesn't back it up, what good are your words? So Paul is inviting us into this life, this way of doing things differently. Now, there's one more verse here. Um, let's see, Shannon and the team, you guys can come up and start getting ready. And I think this is important as we go into worship. He writes and he says, Here, 
There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, this is an important passage. Uh, Paul writes here. Paul's in prison. The Colossians are in Colossae. Where is here? He's talking about in the church, the kingdom of God, the body of Christ. So in this space, well, who are we? He talks about uh, Greek and Jew. Those are, that's a big category. Basically, you're either a Greek or a Jew in that culture, in that place. You're one of those two things. You're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. One is dealing more with you in society. The other is dealing with you more in the religious world. But he talks about it and says, look, those aren't your identity markers anymore. It's not your Jewishness that makes you elevated in the kingdom of God. It's not your Greek wealthy status that elevates you in the kingdom of God. Those things now take second tier to Jesus, who is all in all. But then he goes on and he invites in the barbarians. And to give you a, a picture, the barbarians were a specific people group. So if uh, the Greeks and the Jews are, call it our first world, right? The first world issues that we face, the barbarians would have been like the third world. So people that are still a part of like the global story, but they're struggling. They speak a different language. They don't quite engage with the Greeks. They're trying to figure out life. And Paul's like, they are in this too. They are a one in Christ. So it's not if you happen to be wealthy or if you happen to speak uh, multiple languages or if you happen to be able to exist in a uh, classy society that you belong in the kingdom of God. It's the barbarians as well. And then he includes the Scythians. So if you have Greeks and Jews that are first world, barbarians are third world, the Scythians would have been like the, the cannibals in the Amazon rainforest. The ones that are just totally outside of the world's development. They don't know what's going on outside. And the, the world outside is looking at them saying, how could you? This is, uh, this is barbaric. See, we use that word. This is Scythian. Uh, this is unacceptable. But they just, they, they have no idea where the world has gone. That's still the life that they live. And that was the Scythians. And Paul's saying them too. They belong in the family of God. Now today, our subgroups would be many. But Paul is writing to them, and with this foundation and with this built up, he's looking at it and he's saying, look, when we live our lives, we have to understand what impact Christ has made on all of us. He's taken our old identities, our old ways of life, and he's put them here, and he's elevated that we are all one in Christ to be the most important marker of our identity, and that's what we live. So when you worship and you look around the room, that applies in two ways. Number one, you are not better than anybody else. You are one in Christ. And number two, and maybe this is more our struggle in this culture, nobody else in this room is better than you. You belong. In Christ, you belong. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. This is a people group that had lived a completely sexually deviant lifestyle. These are people that would have come out of our equivalent of prostitution, porn films, strip clubs, whatever it was. These would have been the, the road ragers. These would have been the pedophiles. These would have been every nasty category that we can think of. And they came and found Jesus. And Paul's like, all right, now how does that impact us to all be one in Christ? We worship because we have been given a new name and a new identity, a new personhood. And that's who we are. So as we go to a time of worship, this becomes critical for us to understand 
who we are in Christ on both sides. You're not better and you're not worse. You are absolutely somebody in need of Jesus, as is every single person in this room, myself included. So we worship as one, this Jesus who saved all of us. So here's how we're going to respond. Uh, we sing an incredible song. The first song coming out of this uh, is called You Know Me and You Love Me. It may not be called that, but that's the chorus. It is called that. You know me and you love me. And these may be uh, four of the hardest. No, it's not four words. You know me and you love me. Seven words. Maybe the hardest seven words for some of us to sing because we are declaring to God one of the most embarrassing realities that he knows us. You know the inner workings. You know the impurities. You know the struggles. You know the, uh, the anger, the malice. You know all of what happens in here. And you love me. You are singing from a place of being one loved by God and welcomed into his family. So we acknowledge that. And we worship. We take communion together. Uh, we invite you, if you're new to the church, you'll see a lot of movement. Everybody comes up. We have a prayer team that's here ministering to people just right here in the front row. We want to minister to you today. We take communion. You just walk up with a group or your family or a community group and participate in communion while we worship. We take offering. It's kind of designed for us to respond collectively to what Jesus is doing in our lives. So why don't we stand up together and I'll pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done in us. We thank you for the work that you're doing to uh, put to death the earthly things in us, to put away the, the brokenness of our old way, and to raise up uh, kingdom people that look like you, that live like you, Jesus. We ask that you would bless this process, that as we, even as we sing and respond and worship and, and take communion, Lord, there would be such a deep gratitude of the grace that you show us daily. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you for your work and your invitation into your kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.